Uh, I'm excited to introduce our guest for today, none other than market analyst or lead, head market analyst, lead market analyst. Dylan, I forget what your title is. I'm so sorry, Super. man. Something like uh, that, man. <laughs> all, all I know is truly one of the smartest people on Bitcoin Twitter, someone who I look to for uh, a lot of understanding on how he's seeing and reading cloud world and how that pertains to just the global markets. Dylan, how are you doing, man? Doing great. Uh, excited to be back after a, a long weekend. Uh, went to the U.S. Open, which was which was good fun. Um, but back in the saddle and uh, you know watching the global economy, you know, slow gradually then suddenly implode. Uh, and it's you know it's it's exciting times at the very least. Um, yeah, happy to be here. If uh, if you're not familiar with Dylan and his work on Bitcoin Magazine Pro. Please go over and subscribe to Bitcoin Magazine Pro uh, now. Uh, we've spent some time discussing on Bitcoin Magazine Pro the ongoing energy debacle over in Europe, um, which I'm assuming, Dylan, is what you were alluding to when you're saying uh, slow, gradually and then suddenly the whole world is going to just collapse. Um, let's talk Europe. We were going to share a story out of the UK just before you joined us, and that is the new prime minister just, you know, hitting the ground running and is going to print 130 billion pounds in order to try and freeze UK power bills. Um, we kind of know how this story works, but for those who maybe aren't as well versed, Dylan, do you mind walking us through when you hear or see something like that? How does that relate back now to what your expectations are with oil and gas prices in Europe, as well as what could happen with the pound? Yeah. I mean, you've, you've seen a kind of a, a geopolitical risk premia in, in energy prices, but specifically European energy prices since, uh, since you know, the Putin invasion. And honestly, before that, as, as some people could kind of see supply constraints coming um, with just with, you know, forward uh, European gas prices. But essentially, uh, you know, the entire Eurozone is old. Demographics are terrible. They're up to their eyeballs in debt uh, in, in relative terms. Uh, and, and they're kind of all constrained uh, in this kind of European currency block where uh, it's like you have a bunch of different sovereigns all under one monetary union. It, it's, it's much harder from a fiscal perspective um, to kind of make policy with, with, you know, variable demographics across that block, which is kind of an important part of this whole uh, debacle. And so now, you know, with, with Putin and his escalation and, and military escalation into Ukraine, uh, well, what's essentially happened is that the Western countries are sanctioning, you know, sanctioning Russia and Russia's sanctioning them back and basically calling their bluff in, in energy terms. Um, so now Europe has a massive energy deficit and the surge in prices um, is, is, you know, allowing them or forcing them rather to go into other, other global markets, uh, th whether that's from the U.S. or buying, buying a lot of this uh, energy and gas, oil and gas back from a higher price from China who's simply just buying it from Russia. It's quite absurd, honestly, um, but, you know, in somewhat a virtue signaling manner. Uh, but this essentially estimates now are coming in uh, for the rest of 2022. Um, you know, over the next year, this is going to uh, have a 15%. Uh, the, the energy surge is going to cost Europe 15% of its GDP. And so if you know anything about, you know, modern uh, credit-based economies, um, uh, you know, especially, especially in this debt environment uh, for, you know, for fiat currencies, uh, this, this surge in inflation and, and reversal of, you know, 20, 30 years of disinflationary conditions built upon uh, globalization and, and kind of a unipolar world order where everybody was, you know, harmonizing in, in unison. Uh, that's a, diff that's a, you know, maybe not 
completely different today, but it's, it's all reversing quite rapidly and kind of the lines are being drawn geopolitically, China, Russia, the United States, uh, Taiwan, all these players in the back that are kind of implementing protectionist trade policies and, and re restocking their military. There's obviously a clear escalation point coming and, and none of it over the, the short intermediate term is good for risk assets um, because you have yield soaring in, in bond markets. Bonds are selling off the biggest market in the world. Stocks are selling off in tandem because of an earnings re recession. And, and at the same time, you have, you know, again, Europe and, and the UK coming in and trying to, to paper it over with more stimulus and more spending uh, while, while yields are screaming higher. It's, it's ultimately going to lead to, over the long term, the complete meltdown of all you know, fiat currencies in real terms. Uh, and the dollar will kind of be that last domino. Uh, but over the short term, it's, you know, a really scary situation for, for everyone in Europe. Uh, it's going to be very costly. Uh, and, you know, I, I think it's, it's probably going to get a little bit worse before we can start to work on, on, on solutions and it gets better. Kind of a long answer there. No, no, it, it was excellent though. And I'm, I'm curious to like to, to couple this story with another story that I think relates or seeing now, as of yesterday and last week, Iran, yesterday, Russia announced that they're going to accept cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin being the, the main one that both countries have already started to use uh, as a form of inter international trade settlement. Both countries are famously under sanctions, can't really transact with US dollars. Um, do you think that how important or how significant is something like that? Like, do you think it's in the realm of possibilities for a European country to step away from the sort of central European central bank and say, we will pay you in Bitcoin. We'll pay you in rupees because like our citizens need, our citizens need warmth. Our citizens need, citizens need gas. Um, or is that, or is your expectations based on what you've learned about the, the European central bank and the Eurozone, there won't really be a break or a change from them only wanting to stick to the petrodollar system. Yeah, I think it's important to just recognize that this is all this is all kind of um, devolving from just a unit again a unipolar world order a dollar standard, right? Global energy trade has been conducted in dollars for the last fifty years, and and really uh, going back to Bretton Woods, nineteen forty four, uh, where that dollar became that world settlement unit. Um, and so the fact that that Russia's even saying, you know, pay me in rubles or or maybe euros, which will convert into you know which will convert into gold or or other kind of base assets. Like Putin is, Putin has said this over the last decade. He says, you know, the U.S. basically robs the world by exporting its inflation, exporting its dollars. Uh, the dollars are artificially strong, and and you know, people that produce real goods, real stuff, get screwed over. And and by people, I mean sovereigns like Russia, commodity exporters. Russia is the biggest commodity exporter in the world. So so, what do you do as an energy exporter or a tra uh, a commodities exporter? Um, you know, you're sending goods and services to rest to the rest of the world. Well. That means you have a surplus, you know, an economic surplus. And, you know, traditionally, if say the world is on a gold standard um, and we never saw a globalized world, uh, you know, at, at an international economy at today's scale or even 50 years back on a total gold standard. Um, so that would and it's because gold is very, very uh, hard to move right across across space. Um, but going back to that, you have to store your economic surplus in something. And for the last 70 years, but really the last, you know, the the golden years of globalization, say 1990 to today, or maybe 2015, or whatever that peak was, maybe COVID, um, that economic surplus is, was stored in G7 liabilities. And what I mean by that, the, it's basically the, you know, the sovereign reserves, sovereign debt 
of Eurozone countries, Germany, uh, the United States, treasury market being obviously the largest. Um, you, were, you were holding your claims in, in sovereign G7 uh, you know, uh, debt, right? It's an IOU and it's a promise of future repayment. But what's that payment worth in a world where, where right now we see the Bank of Japan saying, we're going to buy any 10-year any bond over 2.5%. We're going to buy it. So as, as rates go up, as the bond prices go down, we're just going to buy it and, and basically print more bank reserves. Um, we're just going to suppress the cost of debt. And so that's what they're doing. They're doing that already. Uh, the ECB is, is, you know, is, is hawkish, apparently, because they're moving yields from 0% today to probably 75 basis points in the next, I think, month or so. I, maybe, that's, maybe it's this week. Uh, I should know this. Uh, but they just barely raised rates from negative, right? So, and, and they're, in the, you know, they're basically walking into a sovereign debt crisis, because all these governments, their citizens are going to revolt. It's already starting. You're seeing social unrest and 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 quells everywhere already. And there and and the people and the populace, the people think it's it's the politicians. In the same way that you know us watching in the U.S., you know, let's go, Brandon. You know, like your whatever your thoughts are on, on local domestic politics. But people go to the pump, people go to the grocery store, and they're mad at someone, and they're mad at the person whose supposed responsibility it is, and that's the incumbent political party. So both sides on the right and the left, the politicians, like this is the same thing we've seen in previous kind of 80 year cycles of history. Um, you know, when we, the, the previous two world wars, um, specifically like in the thirties, when you saw all of, all of the kind of the fascist leaders arise around the world, well, there was a reason that they, the, the, all those leaders became politically palatable, right? It was the Overton window shifted and, and, you know, the populace demanded radical change in the form of whatever government right or left. And so, you know, they're not going to sit, you, people aren't going to sit around and, and, you know, as they starve or freeze this winter in Europe in a particular country. And that's obviously a little hyperbolic, but at the margin, if prices five X, which they have, um, then, then the inputs of so many things in you know, CPI year over year inflation in Europe is might hit 10, 12, 15, hell, even 20%. You've seen German PPI at 30%. Uh, these things aren't politically palatable, and it's gonna and it's gonna lead to a lot of political uh, promises and basically more debt to be issued by the ECB and those and those uh, sovereigns, or not by the ECB, by those uh, you know local sovereign governments. And so that's gonna be in a debt market that's already selling off because of huge inflation, and it's it's gonna force the ECB to come in and backstop the whole thing again. Per, uh, particularly, you're seeing you know the, those four uh, the the pigs in uh, what's it Portugal, Italy. Greece and Spain are already so weakened up to their eyeballs in debt that there's there's almost you know no option uh, other than to kind of continue to just implement financial monetary repression and and be a be a buyer. Uh, essentially, it's yield curve control, but they're doing it across 15 countries, which makes it all the more uh, challenging. So, I mean, it's it's a really bad situation. Uh, it's, it's you know one of the I think I mean I've, I've I'm a student of markets and I haven't you know sat in the chair for a long time, uh, but this is. A lot of smart people that I that I follow and I respect and I, I read their work um, are saying this is one of the worst situations we've we've ever ever seen. Um, so it's certainly going to be an interesting six to twelve months. Before people tell me I'm muted, I needed to make sure I wasn't. Um, I I love that you're drawing from history to sort of help you better understand and see what's going on here. Um, are there other clues from you know how we went from that transitionary period after World War II that are 
some warning signs, some cautionary things to be concerned about if they were to pop up uh, present day in whatever form variation that that would look like in 2022 or so on? Um, so to be honest, I was just looking at something I spaced out for, for the first half of the question, but I think I, if you want to repeat it again, just shortly, that, that helped. More or less, uh, are there other things historically that are like, Hey, that would be a really bad thing. Like this would be terrible if this happened in 2022 or if something similar in this vein that happened historically happened again, what are those type of events that you're concerned about? Uh, global energy crisis, global, we've seen debt bubbles. We've seen, uh, whether that's housing or subprime or, or tech or, you know, venture capital. And, you know, I, I've referred to 2021 as the everything bubble, you know, since, since, since this, the start of 20, uh, 2021 and, you know, going into it when the central banks went crazy post COVID Bitcoin included, right. It was, it was, it was obviously <laughs> included in that basket of, of everything just melting up. Um, as a result of free money. Um, and so now we're seeing this kind of unwind and we're seeing uh, a check on that everything bubble of this, you know, basically hyperinflated asset uh, bubble from stocks to bonds, right? You had, you had bond yields uh, below 1% at, at one point in the, U in the United States, the cost of capital for the world, right? Um, on a 30 year basis, like this is, it was peak madness. Uh, and it was, it was, you know, certainly kind of illogical from, from a credit market perspective. And so as that, as that bond bubble has deflated, right, what you're seeing is, is everything else. The most liquid market in the world is selling off. It's puking trillions up a day. So, you know, when Bitcoin is 800 billion, right, it's, it's like it's just too small at this point to, to, to decouple from just, you know, the, the magnitude and the size of these things that are coming down the pipe. And that's fine. Like that's all the opportunity in the world for, for the SAT stackers today. But from a financial system perspective, you certainly saw all, all that kind of uh, hidden leverage in the Bitcoin market. Uh, we knew about the kind of transparent leverage for a while, and we talk about it on Bitcoin Magazine Pro all the time. We talk about the, the perpetual swap markets and the funding rates. And these are essentially like it's native cost of capital in, in Bitcoin terms, uh, demand for leverage, demand for, for debt, right? It's like, it's like that's the rise of, of DeFi. You kind of saw like this variable crypto native interest rate. Um, for both, you know, uh, yields and uh, borrowing, for lending and borrowing, um, and that was the same thing in the in the transparent Bitcoin futures markets. Is that you saw this variable interest rate to be long or short, and that interest rate for the for the perpetual futures contract ties its price to the to the actual spot trading price. You're trading a dollar of fiat for a dollar of Bitcoin, or you know, right? That's happening every second, you know, a, a thousand times a second obviously more than that. Um, but the futures market, there's quarterly futures. So for say December of 2023, I don't think there's a contract for that. There isn't. Uh, but for December, 2022, there's Bitcoin futures and there's a price. And right now it's actually probably a, a little bit below today's spot price. People are hedging out risk. Um, but we saw all of that, that transparent leverage all get flushed um, for the most part. Um, and to kind of back to neutral territory. But we didn't know was the Celsius the three eras capital of the world, that hidden leverage also all got pur purged for the most part. Now we're seeing really the stressors on the mining industry. We saw Poolin yesterday. Um, they were, you know, Poolin was essentially assuming the risk of their pool um, and, and mining is all pr probabilistic and it's ultimately luck. Uh, you're just, you know, flipping the coin and, and then, but it's not really flipping a coin. It's obviously hashing a block. But I think they were assuming that risk and, and it looks like they're insolvent and they say they're not, but that's what every insolvent company ever says 
when they say, you know, decide to uh, stop pause withdrawals for, you know, liquidity purposes. So you're seeing pool and you're seeing other kind of miners, right? We're, I think about another at 17 K will be at the lowest hash price ever. Uh, so hash price is minor revenue divided by hash rate. What does that mean? It means miners margins are continuing to squeeze. Um, so we're going to see more selling pressure from miners during this. Um, it's, and it's a natural cleansing of everything, right? Uh, but risk is selling off around the world uh, and credit risk is, is, is you know, rapidly uh, becoming, a, becoming real uh, in legacy markets. Volatility is picking up. Um, and so we're going to, you know, we're, we've seen it in kind of uh, bursts in 2022, but we're probably headed for some global margin call type moment. Uh, and in that scenario, uh, Bitcoin is, is just, you know, it's just not going to get bid. It's not going to decouple just yet. Like it's, we're not in that world. It's okay to recognize it. Um, you know, just it's much more volatile uh, and it's tied to, to global, to global risk flows. Uh, and Bitcoin would decouple if there was meaningful, you know, huge spot buyers coming in, new money coming in for the most part, money is not coming in this ecosystem at the moment. And that's fine. I mean, I, I understand plebs are stacking. Um, I even stack just a little bit, you know, passively uh, on the hour. Uh, but it's not, it's, it's, you know, not a material part of my income. I'm actually just keeping a, you know, a, getting a growing cash hoard uh, to buy blood here. Um, you know, it's more of just kind of a tribute <laughs> stacking a little bit of sats every, every day. Um, but the reality is there's no, no one is coming in with huge, massive size. I know the BlackRock thing happened and was announced at the local top uh, this summer. <laughs> uh, but I think no one's coming in with, with huge size during this, you know, no rich European, or even even the United States at at this point, uh, when equity markets are selling off, bond markets are selling off, volatility spiking, dollars uh, uh, like the foreign currencies are crashing against the dollar. Basically, every single one of them. Uh, no one's going to be stepping in with huge size and buying Bitcoin, right? Um, so, like that's a that's a reason to be like short term bearish. And if you're long term bullish on Bitcoin, that's great because your dollars like there's a decent chance it's a non zero chance that your dollars could still appreciate in Bitcoin terms 50% from here, 100% from here. Like those, those are not 100%, but you know, if, if Bitcoin's price goes down by 50%, you can buy twice as much of it. Um, and so like these are things that could definitely happen. If Bitcoin falls 25%, you get 50% more Bitcoin. Um, and so like, I, I think it's just, it's, important to re like, it's okay to recognize that as a long-term convicted Bitcoiner. Like Bitcoin is not a risk-off asset uh, just yet. It's just not. Um, and so... That's okay. Um, if things are going to get like no one's in, in Europe's going to be buying Bitcoin when there's, you know, they can't afford to heat their house. That's okay. But what's important to contextualize with all of this and why we even talk about, you know, foreign currencies and bonds or a Bitcoin newsletter, why the hell are we talking about bonds and volatility and all this legacy finance stuff? Well, I mean, we just like to quantify the monetization process of this thing. And it's still in the phase working. I mean, the market's telling us that it's still in the phase where it can go down 80, 85%, 90% from the highs which a lot of people in 2020 and 2021, myself included for a bit, said, you know, this time's different, hyper-Bitcoinization, like I was wrong on the, on the timing um, early in, uh, in the spring of 2021. But, you know, we're just not in that world. And so it, when this thing unwinds, uh, which it's unwinding, the whole global financial economic system, uh, the response at the end of it is going to be just a massive, and I think really the Fed matters. The ECB and B BOJ can print. But if the Fed's not accommodative, if, we're, if the Fed isn't bailing out the global dollar shortage and the U.S. government doesn't spray a bunch of uh, funny money again, you know, that's that's really monetary policy for the world. 
Um, and so on the other side of that, it's going to be just, you know, it's, they're going to, they're going to have to reinflate the whole bubble again. They're going to have to, they're going to have to print their, their eyeballs out. Um, but you know, until that moment comes, I think it's going to be tough for, for a lot of risk. Hey guys, this is Q from Bitcoin Magazine Live. Bitcoin Magazine and the team that brought you the world's largest Bitcoin conference is bringing the mission of hyper-Bitcoinization global with the inaugural European gathering this fall. Bitcoin Amsterdam takes place October 12th through 14th at the beautiful Westergaas venue in the heart of the city. Join thousands of Bitcoiners for three days of curated Bitcoin content that is relevant to the emerging Bitcoin scene in Europe and the global movement. Confirmed speakers include Dr. Adam Back, Alex Gladstein, Greg Foss, Ray Youssef, and many, many more. This will be an immersive conference which includes hands-on engagements at our proof-of-work shop stage, as well as exclusive content for VIP whales in the deep. Bitcoin Amsterdam's exclamation point will be a massive Bitcoin party and music festival that you won't want to miss. The European installment of Sound Money Fest takes place on day three of the event, October 14th, and admission is included with GA and whale passes. Check out all the details at b.tc forward slash conference and use promo code BMLIVE for 10% off. Ticket prices increase on August 21st, so grab your tickets today for €299 for a GA ticket and €3,499 for VIP whale passes. As the world moves increasingly towards the mainstream adoption of Bitcoin, Moon Mortgage makes it possible to materialize your digital assets. Collateralized loans are great for living expenses, buying a car, or even for when you just have to have that sweet Rolex. But what isn't so great is when you then lose the ability to trade your assets once your loan has been taken out. So just like you, Moon Mortgage believes you should be able to have your cake and eat it too. Moon Mortgage's Trade and Borrow is the world's first digital asset loan margin account, allowing you to instantly trade your Bitcoin while borrowing against your account, all with next to zero insolvency risk, no origination fees, nor any third-party risk, as Moon Mortgage will never lend out your digital assets. Welcome to the future of collateralized lending. Visit moonmortgage.io today to learn how you can trade, borrow, and then trade your digital assets some more. If you're like me and want to gain a deeper understanding of what's going on within the Bitcoin market and broader macro environment, you need to subscribe to Bitcoin Magazine Pro today. There's both a free and paid version of this daily newsletter where our market analysts break down what's going on in the markets so you don't have to. Subscribe today at BitcoinMagazinePro.com. So there's something interesting that you said, and P, I'd love your guidance and perspective here because I will age Dylan and myself in saying that we we haven't been around nearly as long through as many cycles as you have. Um, and you kind of hear these stories of like, oh, like this bear market's different because you have more companies now still getting involved talking about Bitcoin. I'm still of the of the mindset of from 2018 to 2019, you didn't hear mainstream media like CNBC on a daily basis talk about Bitcoin, whereas now you do. And while like I, Dylan, I was laughing so hard at the BlackRock coming in at the local top with their latest partnership with Coinbase and like I remember reading those stories about, I believe it was Fidelity in 2017. Like they released their market product at the local top at that moment in time. And then all of a sudden, like everything went down. They closed these offerings down though previously. And this iteration, we're actually seeing businesses 
want to try to stay here. So P, my question to you is like, does this feel different? Does the environment actually feel like we're setting ourselves up or is this another cycle where inevitably we're in a bear market, people aren't going to be going in, people aren't necessarily going to be investing in Bitcoin or the ecosystem pretty much until as the old trading saying goes, like, what have you done for me recently? Like until Bitcoin starts going up for investors. Yeah. I mean, it's a great question. We talked about this recently. I, it, it does feel like we're in a very different situation, uh, you know, in large part because of the, the larger macroeconomic environment, everybody is, um, is really looking to figure out like, okay, where do I maintain my value in a way that, um, that was not happening in the last bear market in Bitcoin. Um, I, you know, I, I think that as we talked about as well, we are, Bitcoin is undeniable now, you know, to what you were just saying, like Black, you know, BlackRock did, uh, you know, <laughs> announce this partnership uh, at the top at the same time. There are new news stories every single day about major uh, banks, major entities uh, continuing to, very publicly get involved in Bitcoin. And we just didn't see that to my knowledge uh, as much in the last cycle. So I, I do think this is different. Um, I think that I think that people are turning more and more to Bitcoin, even as we are in this very, uh, you know, uh, uh, dark looking global macroeconomic environment because they're starting to understand the, um, the importance of it, even despite the the recent declines in price. So the short version is, I have no idea what the fuck's going to happen next. It does feel different than the previous cycles um, because Bitcoin feels way more undeniable. People are still talking about it and it'll be interesting to see how it continues to play out. Dylan, let's talk uh, domestically. Oh, wait, I actually do have one question. Sorry, that's related so, to that. Oh, oh my God, he's oh. alive. Normally I just sort of, uh, sit quietly and, and absorb the considerable knowledge during these types of conversations. But um, how is the, how does the on-chain environment look different than where we are in the cycle at the, in the, in the last cycle's bear market? Have you, have you looked into that at all, Dylan? Like what, what are, what is the on-chain data showing us? Yeah. So um, we, we, and we, we still talk about the on-chain side of things. I think just from a, from like when we're talking about like a price prediction standpoint, I think it's it's still on a on a, at the margin. Prices decided at the margin. It's still Bitcoin and and you know a lot of these supply metrics we look at right and we we talk about this uh, one uh, supply held for one year. It's you know I think it's flirting still with 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 highs. Maybe it's, it's come down a bit. I haven't I haven't checked uh, in the recent week. Um, but it's like sixty percent of Bitcoin haven't moved in a year, right? But that, you know, Bitcoin, the supply and elasticity of it, the absolute scarcity of it and the hodler mentality is great in bull markets because it just takes a, just a small tap of money, right? Um, and the supply and the elasticity, right? Sellers are exhausted, right? After you puke the lows, after Bitcoin during 2020 goes from 10,000, everybody's, you know, it's, it's moon season, lever long, the halving is coming up, you know what happens next. And then COVID happens, you know, Black Swan, all this leverage completely unwinds, force selling, capitulation. Uh, there were, you know, Bitcoin and, and BitMEX drove the price down 55% a day. And what happened after that was basically there was no sellers left. Obviously, there was a, the, the tailwind of a ton of money, um, but there was no sellers. So what we can see with on-chain, specifically with something like realized price, where we can see the average cost basis 
of every Bitcoin on the network. Um, during It went from about 4K in 2020. So the average Bitcoin on chain, the cost basis, the realized price, swapped hands at 4K. Uh, and that was basically, uh, I think it got to $3,500 at the, at the absolute top in 2017. December 14th or whatever it was, 2017, I think it was maybe the 18th, the, the 20K top briefly. Um, the average Bitcoin had only traded hands at like $3,500. Over the next three years, despite Bitcoin drawing down 85%, chopping around, getting to 12K in the summer of, of 2019, the average cost base only really rose to 4000 And then COVID happened, it puked. Uh, but from there, you know, a, a hop all of money came in, trying to move the thing, and all the willing sellers were gone. And so you saw that average cost basis with all the money that was chucked at Bitcoin, it went from 4K to 24K uh, at the at the top of, uh, I think it was like uh, November of this year. At the absolute top, it just kept rising, kept rising, kept rising. Old, old coins were getting you know found in stashes, switched to new hands in the bull market. New money was coming in. Um, since then, we've seen a you know massive capitulation in price. Bitcoin's down 80, 85%. And that cost basis, I, I believe off the top of my head, and I can actually look, um, from 24, I think it's around, I think it's around $20,000. It was at 21 and it keeps going lower as on the you know reverse side of things you see during bull markets, uh, realized price goes up, coins are changing hands at a profit. At a, in a bear market, you see, you know, basically any 2021 at 19 K anyone in 2021 and, and really anyone in 2020, except for a, a few weeks, a, a week or so is underwater, right? So you're seeing realized cap. Uh, realized price go down in a pretty meaningful way. Let me try to find this uh, stat for you. Right now, the realized price is twenty one thousand five hundred. So Bitcoin's at nine k. Any any you know Bitcoin nineteen uh, k. That that realized price is coming down uh, because there's some capitulation. So I I think it still matters and it still gives you a really solid framework when Bitcoin's under its cost basis. It's like typically peak bear market, right? This in throughout the past cycles, it's like a fantastic opportunity to buy. But from what Sam and I have done with our analysis, it can still drop 50% below that, right? Um, it can still, it, and it's done that. It's, I think it's dropped 40% below its average cost basis uh, in the previous in the previous bear market. So like, yeah, the average cost basis was you know, 4K, but it went to three and a half, right? So like there was some pain. Right now it's 19, it can go a lot lower, but we're seeing, we're still seeing that on-chain kind of capitulation play out. I think we're going to see some minor capitulation on-chain play out. Um, as you get that that minor re- that hash price, that minor revenue divided by hash rate, that minor uh, profitability margin uh, kind of estimate, it's just a good, it's just a solid metric to look at across all miners in the space. It just looks at hash rate as a whole. Um, you're going to see some capitulation there, and so these are the things that we like to watch with on chain. Uh, but I think at the margin, it's still going to trade. Basically, you know, if you look at a 30 second chart at any point. It's going to trade relative to, to global risk, to, to equities, to, to bonds, to all these things as, as it's more intertwined. I want to I want to shift it to domestic debt now, if I if I can be. Absolutely, go for it. Okay, cool. So we have a Fed meeting in about two weeks. I know Dylan. We also touched on at the beginning. EC, the ECB has their sort of rate hike meeting, I believe next week or this week. Um, as the year's kind of winding down, we saw at the beginning of the year what the expectations were. We're starting to see how those very much are not going to 
be the case. Expectations included what all these different central banks thought inflation would be at, where they expected or thought that interest rates would be at. Um, and we're starting to see their their plans blow up before their very eyes. Um, if you'll entertain me for a moment, I want to give you the right to make decisions as though you are Jerome Powell. Um, what are you doing in two weeks at the Fed meeting? Uh, I mean, I think the markets just told them they're going to hike. Um, they, they have to hike. You know, there's still a huge spread between uh, – and then and the domestic economy doesn't look that bad. I mean, U.S. Uh, US consumers are still spending. Um the, the kind of the fall in energy prices recently has, has helped that. Um, and I think relatively the U.S. consumer and economy is in way better shape compared to anyone um, as a whole. Um, but it's still, you know, I, I still think we're headed for a recession. We see a lot of things turn over, like, like starting to turn over, like housing. Um, and, and you also see just, you know, the wealth effect, what the Fed actually runs a lot of their modeling on is, you know, the reason that they want to get asset prices down is because they know that it influences consumer behavior it influences spending, it influences demand, uh, consumer demand, and they want inflation down year over year, right? That's the politically uh, most uh, kind of prominent thing is get inflation down domestically and, and really globally, but no one else really runs the, the, the monetary policy of the world like the Fed does. So, I mean, I would, I would throw a big hike out there. Um, it's going to, sh- I mean, it's not going to shock markets. I, I believe that 75 is priced in, 50 is priced in. I'm, I'm not even sure I should know this. I look at Euro dollar futures, which is basically the, the rates market for this almost daily. Um, but yeah, I mean, bonds bonds are setting new lows today, long, long dated bonds. Uh, you know, so anybody that's been bullish bonds after, you know, after the kind of the massacre that, that happened in June uh, is really like, I mean, you can look at Bitcoin's chart over the last, since, since say May, you can weekly candles, you can look at treasury bonds, you can look at equities or you can inverse a dollar index and look at that. And they're all telling you the same story. Like, <laughs> and so that's, that's why like, I, I just remain quite pessimistic and bearish on the price is like, it's just this, it's global bubble of assets, this huge pool of assets, which, which Bitcoin is just a, still a tiny little, tiny little like pond over here. It's like a sideshow um, that, you know, the, the main show is there's a hurricane, <laughs> you know? And so like your pond, even if it's a really good pond, it's just not, <laughs> not going to be able to withstand that's just a terrible analogy by the way but it's just it's just so <laughs> tiny um uh, yeah like I, I i think that's that's the story here i i get where you're where you're trying to take that analogy i want to let's go the other way though rather than filling this pond up the U.S. just markets as a whole have had so much liquidity pumped into them pretty much since 2007 2008 as we've seen pretty much over the last 15 years, anytime the Fed takes the liquidity out of the market, the market responds justifiably with a nice little contraction heading down before inevitably the Fed does something to re-inject liquidity into the market. Um, rather than speculate on whether or not Jerome Powell has the balls or the gumption to actually unwind 15 years of liquidity, some some of which he isn't even at fault for or had no part in participating in. Uh, do you think it's realistic for like the US to try and unwind all of it? Do you even think that that amount of pain that that would cause um, 
would like the citizens, would people actually tolerate that? Would, or would people get so upset to watch a full unwind all the way down to decrease the amount of liquidity that the Fed and the government has put into the public markets for the last 15 years? Well, that, I mean, they're going to crash. They're going to crash global markets. Um, that's what they're telling you. Um, and it's not politically palatable. And they're going to probably, my, I mean, my current thesis, like market, market-wise, as a participant, is that they, you know, something breaks. And so it forces them to step back in. And what, I think that's, that's the first, that's Euro debt markets by the looks of the energy crisis. Um, and then what comes next is probably, uh, is probably the treasury market, because you have this global dollar shortage playing out um, as, as global economic activity and trade slows, uh, the circulating supply of dollars slows with it. You have, I think, you know, 15 trillion dollars of uh, global denominated debt offshore. And that's just the on balance sheet stuff. There's, there's similar to how in the, in the crypto Bitcoin markets, you could probably see like some transparent uh, derivatives data and be like, Hey, there's, you know, this amount of leverage and it doesn't seem like it's, it's all that bad. And then you come to find out that you have three arrows capital that going and borrowing unsecured from everybody. You have this very opaque, you know, that to, to kind of bridge the crypto analogy the, the much bigger story here is you have this really, really opaque global debt-based system, uh, particularly offshore where, where corporates, sovereigns, uh, you know, all of the like, uh, clearinghouses are, are negotiating and, and settling and invoicing each other in dollars, dollar, dollar assets, dollar liabilities, promises to pay dollars. So when this whole thing slows down, what, what happens is anybody that has dollar-denominated debt just gets absolutely uh, pummeled, and so the dollar screams higher, and and you know there's defaults and all this, and and the defaults exacerbate the problem further uh, because uh, what happens during a default is money supply is destroyed. Uh, you know, the when bond when the bond market sells off when yields go higher, that money's just disappearing. Like there was a trillion dollars of people thought was wealth or assets, and lower the next you know at the open, and it's not there anymore. Like it's. It didn't go anywhere. It's just destroyed. Um, and so that's kind of the realities of a credit-based system. Uh, and I think the Fed, and it's not really the fault of the Fed or the fault of Powell or really any specific actor, but rather just the kind of incentive structures of, of you know, debt-based monetary systems, governments, uh, the, the, the voting structure in a democracy, uh, and just the reality of fiat currencies is that uh, they're, they're going to take it too far. It's probably going, something's going to break in a massive way. Um, you know, and probably the treasury market at some point it freezes or is becomes a liquid or, you know, yield spike uh, when they should be dropping or whatever it may be. Um, they pivoted in 2019 before COVID and they started uh, expanding their balance sheet again because of a repo issue. Right. And so banks are, are more well capitalized today, but it's not maybe a banking system issue, rather just kind of this you know global margin cause as Europe gets mauled. Um, it could be really anything. And again, like it's not my total expertise, but just being a student of history and analyzing previous debt cycles where there was far less debt in the system and interest rates were started at a starting point much higher, something always breaks um, in, a, in a debt crisis. And, and it, you know, it leads to more Fed easing, um, more central bank easing and a real kind of devaluation of global currencies. I think where, you know, my, my kind of master thesis, the reason I honestly left college just to just to stack Bitcoin and, and to focus on Bitcoin as a as an asset before I even figured out, um, you know, before I knew I was going to be working at Bitcoin magazine, 
um, was that we're kind of at this end stage of a global debt bubble, a global debt, uh, global debt cycle, long-term debt cycle. And something's on the other side of it. Uh, and I don't think it's a new CBDC and I don't think it's gold. Um, and so, you know, the optimist in me, the technologist in me says that's Bitcoin um, from, from everything that I can see. Um, and it's, it's going to take some time. There's going to be a ton of volatility al along the way. And with that, a bunch of opportunity. Um, so I think that's the long-term vision uh, of all this. I don't think any of us would necessarily disagree on that long-term vision. Um, I am curious though, and not, not in a speculative manner, just potential ways for Bitcoin to usurp the dollar in the midst of what is about to be the dollar milkshake theory playing out. We're seeing Japan slowly collapse. We're talking right now about the inevitable collapse of the euro. Um, the dollar milk milkshake theory would dictate that because all these countries have debts denominated in USD, they will inevitably be forced to adopt the US dollar as their main form of currency. My question is, in this process, how or, or what are ways for Bitcoin to almost inject itself as the lifeboat for these different company or countries? Yeah, it's tough. Um, I think more kind of local adoption with like stuff with El Salvador, but just the reality is, uh, you know, that the dollar and, and the, the need for it at the moment is just is despite again, the dollar falling in you know, 10% in real purchasing power terms, uh, there's just there's there's so much demand for it because one you know the largest economy in the world the U.S. Uh, requires you to pay your taxes in it uh, legal tender laws etc. Um, but two it's just there's so much dollar debt out there um, so if you if you're indebted in, in the USD you need to find a way to earn it and you need to find a way to pay it <laughs> or else you you know you as an entity a corporate or a sovereign are insolvent um, <laughs> and so I think there's because in a, in a credit upswing up you know the upstart of a credit cycle. When, uh, you know, there's kind of this reinforcement loop, positive reinforcement loop, everybody's incomes are rising, assets are rising, debts becoming cheaper, liquidity is improving, credit, credit worthiness and conditions are easing, um, you know, dollars are abundant. And, and, you know, although the long-term trend for dollars, you know, is like this, or the purchasing power is like this, it's sloping downwards, that's obvious. There's, there's a bunch of boom and busts along the way. Um, and, you know, kind of with the domestic credit cycle and really the international credit cycle. Uh, and so I think we're in kind of one of those downswings where, where actually somewhat paradoxically when inflation is 10%, um, you know, aside from being, I guess, short, a lot of, a lot of risk assets, short bonds, um, you know, there's obviously those trades you can make, but what's the best place to be in when, you know, globally when inflation is, is, is eight, nine, 10%, 11%, 12%. Um, well, for a lot of people and for most people uh, it's dollars paradoxically over the short term. Like this is just, and for even a stacker, right? You can have 50% of your net worth in Bitcoin. I wouldn't say, and as someone who's had a hundred percent of my net worth in Bitcoin for a good part of, of the last, my entire adult life, <laughs> um, since, since the day I started earning a paycheck, I started stacking Bitcoin. Like it's okay to have, it's okay to have dollars. If you like understand, um, how a credit-based system works in the short term, and and you know your purchasing power in real asset terms, whether that's shares of the S and P or oil producers, or you can measure it in units of gold or whatever. You're you know you can you can measure it in Bitcoin. Uh, your your purchasing power in dollar terms during these periods can actually increase by a lot. Uh, if if like stocks have fallen twenty percent or nineteen percent or whatever it is, 
they can fall another 20%. Like Bitcoin dropped another 80%, dropped 80% from the highs. Volatility, the way this thing trades, the, the relative lack of liquidity compared to other global assets, like it can fall another 50%. Um, and so there is, despite the long-term asymmetry of Bitcoin, like that's undeniable. And I bet my, I, I mean, I literally bet a lot of my life on that thesis. Um, over the short term, there could be a ton of, and I'd argue by far actually, by wide margin, dollars over the say next six months, um, in BTC terms, in S and P 500 terms, and in really anything terms, maybe even real estate, like whatever, it could be global credit, dollars. The asymmetry is so strong over the short term. Right? Like you look at watch the Bitcoin chart and any balance over the last. I mean, even even when you know a lot of the crypto ecosystem went up 100% off the lows. Uh, I get a lot of it's you know <laughs> scammy pump and dumps, but um, you know, ETH goes up 100%, S&P 500 goes up 20% or 25% off the lows, Bitcoin goes 43% off, off the lows. And it trades at 3x the historical volatility roughly and 3x the implied volatility of, of equities. And it only bounced like not even double. Um, and, and similarly, it's almost at its lows. And so it's like, yeah, I think there may be some short-term asymmetry in dollars. And the only reason I care is because on the other side of this thing, like, the goal for me is to have as much Bitcoin as possible. Cause I think that's in a, in a decade of, of eroding globalization in a, the end of a debt super cycle. The reality is over, over the longer term, the populace will literally demand and, and governments, politicians will abide, central bankers will abide um, to print the currency into oblivion. And so I think that's the end game. And for, for Bitcoin, you have a digital synthetic commodity, a monetary asset you can send anywhere in the world that has a, a marginal production cost that's literally going straight up and to the right uh, with a ton of volatility, but the long-term trend, throw a moving average, you can't even calculate the, the, the marginal production cost because it's marginal. And so some people will produce it uh, for zero input costs, you know, whether it's waste gas or whatever it is, maybe a waterfall, hydro, right? Uh, it doesn't cost anything to produce. Water, it's you know, abundant, energy abundant, and it's, and it's not located near you know, where humans are, are desiring it. There's this incentive just all over the world uh, mop up excess energy with Bitcoin mining. And so um, basically the marginal production cost because of Bitcoin supply schedule, because of the difficulty adjustment uh, as hash rate goes to the moon and as Moore's law kicks in and the miners get more efficient and better and, and hash rate keeps going up, um, you're going to see the marginal production cost of Bitcoin programmatically tick up with it um, as issuance goes to zero. Uh, and, and, you know, again, difficulty keeps ratcheting up. So I think, that's like the, you know, the upside is that we have this thing that nobody understands that trades like a total risk asset. Um, and, you know, if, if it's a digital synthetic commodity that, that it credibly enforces monetary policy in a you know, world where central banks have gone mad, gold has been completely captured by paper markets. There's a reason it didn't, it didn't, you know, succeed as money in global markets before. You know, there's something potentially really big here, um, and that's you know that's where you can increase your purchasing power by a factor of a hundred if the thesis is right over a 10, 15 year span. Um, yeah. Beautifully said, Dylan. Um, you almost reminded me, and I just wanted to get your like quick thoughts of uh, the dictator that runs this terrible now well now terrible once great state of California decided over the last two weeks to ban gas cars and then shortly thereafter ask everyone in the midst of our first heat wave of the year to not plug in said electric vehicles um 
when you see policy moves like this, uh, just want to ask you, is California going to make it? Oh, you're muted. <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to lie. I've never been to California, um, but probably not going to make it. So, you know, you already hear first thoughts. Uh, California is fucked. This is true. This is true. Well, uh, Dylan, as we wrap up here, I wanted to give you the opportunity to touch on anything else that we haven't touched on. I know that you and the Bitcoin Magazine Pro team had put out countless, countless articles touching on much of the stuff we've talked about here today, as well as so many other things that just go on in the world and how it all relates back to Bitcoin. Uh, so I want to just give you the opportunity to touch on anything else. Yeah, I mean, I don't have too much more to add. Uh, if you're interested in any of the stuff I've rambled on about today, um, make sure to check out BM, uh, BM, BitcoinMagazinePro.com. Uh, it's Bitcoin Magazine uh, Pro. You can find it in, in Substack if you already have the app. Um, we've actually been getting a ton of, of native Substack re recommendations lately, which is, which is cool to see. Uh, it's, you know, there's a growing, growing network of, of publishers and, and kind of content creators on Substack. It's a pretty cool thing. Uh, but we talk about it all. So, um, you know, there's visuals. We just recently brought up uh, Jeff Ross, who's going to be putting out basically live positioning for anyone that, you know, if you want to stack sats and, and chill and just, just take in content, that's great. Uh, and we're going to, Sam and I are going to be pumping that out uh, for the more active crowd. Uh, Jeff Ross is going to be putting out a pretty cool product. Um, so for anyone that wants to see that, uh, we recommend you uh, give it a go. And thanks for having me on. This was a fun talk. Dylan, thank man. you as always for joining us. And I cannot stress enough, guys. Uh, Bitcoin Magazine Pro is easily the best macro newsletter out there. There is a free version. It costs you no money at all. And you're going to get a lot, a lot smarter from reading the analysis of guys like Dylan, Sam, and Jeff Ross. So be sure to go subscribe now. I'm going to call it. Let's Do just it. wrap. My Let's friends, wrap. thanks again. See you tomorrow. Hey guys, this is Q from Bitcoin Magazine Live. Bitcoin Magazine and the team that brought you the world's largest Bitcoin conference is bringing the mission of hyper-Bitcoinization global with the inaugural European gathering this fall. Bitcoin Amsterdam takes place October 12th through 14th at the beautiful Westergaas venue in the heart of the city. Join thousands of Bitcoiners for three days of curated Bitcoin content that is relevant to the emerging Bitcoin scene in Europe and the global movement. Confirmed speakers include Dr. Adam Back, Alex Gladstein, Greg Foss, Ray Youssef, and many, many more. This will be an immersive conference, which includes hands-on engagements at our proof-of-work shop stage, as well as exclusive content for VIP whales in the deep. Bitcoin Amsterdam's exclamation point will be a massive Bitcoin party and music festival that you won't want to miss. The European installment of Sound Money Fest takes place on day three of the event, October 14th, and admission is included with GA and whale passes. Check out all the details at b.tc forward slash conference and use promo code BMLIVE for 10% off. Ticket prices increase on August 21st, so grab your ticket today for €299 Euros for a GA ticket and €3,499 for VIP whale passes. The censorship-resistant issue of the Bitcoin Magazine print edition is available now. Grab your copy at your local Barnes & Noble store or head on over to the Bitcoin Magazine store and use promo code BMLIVE to get 10% off of your order today. Thank <laughs> you.